Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Well, hello, Missio Day. Uh, I'm excited to be able to share a message with you today. I hope it's a meaningful time as we study God's word together. We are in a time that is full of tension. It's a heightened season of life. Uh, Not only are we in a global pandemic, but we have an important election that's right around the corner. Um, The first debate was even this past week. And I think we can all say that there are many people, even ourselves included, that are angry and anxious and overwhelmed by so much that's happening in our world. We are beginning a new series today on the kingdom of God. Jesus said to to pray to God that his kingdom would come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And though I know that almost all of you are probably zeroed in on the candidate that you're going to vote for for president, our hope in this sermon series is not to tell you how to vote, but to teach, based on the scriptures, what it means to think about politics and our faith as followers of Jesus. So the next eight weeks are not in a November election primer, but a kingdom of God primer to remind us of our allegiance and our call in the world and what it might practically look like to live out our faith in the city of Chicago. Our scripture passage for today comes from Colossians 1. It's a familiar passage, but still try to listen intently on what it's declaring about Jesus as king. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." So my job today is to give a bit of an intro, uh, to just consider the different ways in which Christians um, have participated in in politics, maybe some ways in which we can begin to look towards the future and what we could be as the people of God together in the world. There are so many questions when it comes to faith and politics. What is the Christian's role in the public square? Do faith and politics go together at all? Should we just stick to religion? Should Christians ignore politics or use it as a means to create a Christian state or at least legislate morality? Can Christians get power and use it for good or will power automatically corrupt so it should be resisted? Is the pursuit of justice best found through changing laws primarily or through changing the human heart? Can I be fully a Republican or a Democrat and pursue the kingdom of God? 
What does it look like to live out our value of renewal when it comes to politics? There are so many different perspectives. And the church in her history has had many different approaches, even in the United States. And today I want to give you just a few examples of how uh, I grew up. I mean, there, you may have grown up differently than me, but I want you to see how uh, different ways of looking at faith and politics can impact um, our witness in the world and can actually uh, do good or evil things. There were two main polarizing perspectives growing up, and there, there was probably a middle ground as well, but I want to share the polarizing perspectives first. That one is separatism. And this is the idea that our job as a Christian is to live a pious life, to remove ourselves from the danger of politics because what happens is you become hungry for power. And since laws can't actually change our hearts, we should focus our time on salvation, discipleship, and the mission of God. The church should be in the business of saving souls and winning souls, not winning elections. Often, uh, we, we, we see this perspective, it denies that Jesus is a political figure. Instead, they, they would argue that Jesus claimed to focus on spiritual matters of life, that Jesus separated the political and religious worlds for good, and the two should never really meet. See, there's a, a realm where Caesar rules and another where God rules. They would say, well, Jesus' message was really about love. It was about spiritual things. It was about bringing peace but if this is your position, if you were to argue for this position of complete separation from politics, from any influence on government, even some cases from people from voting, you have to ask yourself the question, if Christianity is all about love, then why was Jesus rejected? Why was Jesus crucified? Before he died on the cross, I mean, Jesus could have just said, I think that there was a failure of communication here. He should have said, we, all I'm arguing for is that we should love one another. But Jesus' message wasn't just about love. He knew what he was doing. Jesus himself was a politic. And to say that Jesus is Lord is to declare that Herod is not. It's to say that Caesar is not Lord. Colossians 1 flat out says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. It says that thrones and powers and rulers and authorities, all these things were created by him and for him. Jesus is over it all, the ruler over all of these things. So the title of the sermon today is this declaration that the early church said over and over. It was a mantra, like a mantra of the early church that Jesus is Lord. And that doesn't mean that Jesus is simply Lord over your soul or your inner self or your heart, but that Jesus is over society and culture and presidents and nations. The declaration that Jesus is Lord in Colossians 1 declares so clearly that he is Lord over above all others. And if we are to separate ourselves out of the world, to kind of live this separatist uh, lifestyle. In, in a lot of ways, and to remove ourselves from politics, it, it reeks of privilege because the results of the election don't really impact us. 
The other side, uh, and the other example that I saw growing up uh, when it involved Christians in politics was almost like a, a Christian nationalism. And this took the almost completely opposite approach of the separatists. They were looking to take America back to what they believed was its beginning, a Christian nation. And they would do this by legislating for morality and getting people in power. And there's this kind of underlying uh, belief that the state can fix our problems if we just get enough power and the right people in place. But I think if we do a deep dive into scripture, we'll begin to recognize that there are no Christian nations, only Christians living in many different nations. There are no theocracies. There was one, uh, Israel, in the Old Testament that no longer exists in that same form. Jesus declares that his message is now for the nations. And so we should recognize that there is no such thing as a Christian state as we've seen. And, in, and whenever there was an effort to try to do that, it just breeded all sorts of sins. An example are the Crusades, and we've seen all sorts of oppression in many other systems and structures throughout history. If you even think about the, the Civil War, I mean, the Civil War were two sides of people uh, believing that they had God on their side. I mean, you can read testimonies from the North and the South, and both people believe that God was for them, that God would give them the victory, that God was certainly on their side of this battle. This really comes down to this idea of nationalism, and it reeks of idolatry. It puts a trust in a nation to change hearts, and your primary allegiance is often to the nation over God or a person over God. It almost always ends with incredible abuses of power and the failure of laws to make people good. So what do we do? Do we find some sort of middle ground? Well, yeah, I, I definitely think we need to find some middle ground, but, but moderation can also be problematic. If you go back into the civil rights movement, moderates were the ones that were criticizing Martin Luther King Jr. and encouraged him and others to trust the court system to work it out. Just be patient. Be patient forever for change, for justice to come. Moderates often care more about keeping peace instead of pursuing justice and righteousness. And peace without justice and righteousness really isn't God's peace at all. They extol the virtue of peace while sitting in privilege and asking people to wait. Well, that's a lot. Those are three different options, and they all seem problematic in a way, but I hope the next eight weeks will help us shape this more. But today I want to at least begin to consider what it might look for us, just to kind of give some hints, some, some, maybe some things to hold on to as we begin to think about faith in politics. And I want to begin with the framework of what I said before, that Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, I'm convinced that Christians are called to examine every situation as if God mattered in those situations. We must think of everything in the world that, that these things matter to God. Our opinions and how we act and how we live matters to God. And I think that we need to remember at least two things um, to, to begin with. Understanding what Christians, I think, bring to 
the world, how we've been marked by God because of it, and then some practical applications. And the first thing I think we need to remember, whose image we bear. In Mark 12, there's this uh, fascinating story of Jesus interacting with some religious leaders. And they come to try to test Jesus and trap him by getting him to take a, a, a position on a political issue of the day, which was whether or not he should pay the imperial tax. So they try to trap him, and Jesus makes this amazing statement by saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. And they couldn't trap him because essentially what he was declaring is there are certain things, uh, this coin has Caesar's head on it, and that can be Caesar's. That's fine. That has his image on it, so it's his. But there's a declaration in the scriptures that the people of God are image bearers of God's. And so Jesus is saying that if you have uh, my image, then I want you. I want your whole life. I want your organ- you to, to organize your life around me. If you bear his image, you have a stamp of God on your life. And so our goal is not to simply take good moral stances, but to to give up our whole lives to follow Jesus because he has given us, uh, his image is on us. So we can't start with a political platform or a political leader. We pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ because his image is stamped on us and his kingdom and everything else is secondary to that. The second thing I think that we sometimes forget is that Christianity does bring a, a great deal to the world. One of the things that I think Christianity brings to the world is it, it is the Imago Dei, that we are all made in the image of God. It's this vision for human dignity that every single person has incredible, intrinsic value. Hitler used to use the, the phrase that people were, that he didn't like or didn't get along with, were useless eaters. But everybody that... Uh, in the world, Christians view as bearing the image of God. I think that oftentimes we would say this, and many, uh, maybe uh, people that aren't Christians or wouldn't say that they're followers of Jesus wouldn't uh, argue that we have the image of God on us, but they would argue that we have intrinsic value and worth. Uh, This is even written into different documents. There's a a UN charter on human rights that the writer said himself, though, the charter will only work as long as no one asks why it exists. Because apart from a God that declares we have his image on us, there's no philosophical grounding for this unique value of human beings if you take away the religious way of seeing it. This has been uh, shared throughout generations as Christians declared that women, slaves, and the poor and children have value and everyone dismissed them. And so I think it's important that we understand that Christianity brings this this demand for uh, human dignity for all people. It's a concern for the poor and the vulnerable. It's an inclusion and welcome of others that Christianity brings to the table and should hold accountable to. And so here's a few ways, I think, in which Christians can engage in politics and do so uh, well and do so biblically as we begin to think through this these next eight weeks.
So here are a few practical thoughts. I think first is a job as a Christian. And I think we can see this all throughout the scriptures and all throughout history is that we are called to speak truth to power. In some ways, it's like taking a mirror and you're holding it up to whoever is in charge, whoever's in power, and showing them what they look like, showing them what they're doing and how it matters in the world, to hold them accountable, to speak prophetically over systems and structures and laws and political leaders, and those things that matter to God. The second thing that I think we can step into is there's this take on this willingness to suffer as exiles. think that we look at the scriptures in particular and we see people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel. We look at Esther. We look at Nehemiah. We look at Joseph. We look at, um, uh, you know, Peter and, and Paul and other apostles in the New Testament. And what we find are these people that had firm convictions but recognized that their lives would never align fully with the state, that they were in many ways exiles with even within their own countries. And that they would be asked to do things at certain times that absolutely contradicted the way that they believed God would have them act in the world and that they'd have to stand up and be strong. They'd have to go far enough to believe that, that, they, would, that they should even suffer to stand up for what they believed in. See, Christians are never quite at home in any political system, though they can thrive in any form of government. We need to uh, honor the things that need to be honored, and we need to resist things that need to be resisted at the same time. And we can never allow our mission and our message to be distorted. And so I think this willingness to see that we are not part of some uh, unique country that's that is 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 a christian country and is under god's and our job isn't just to legislate morality will allow us to be free to live as people that are free but willing to suffer for christ willing to suffer for our neighbor willing to give up our lives for the sake of other people the third thing i would encourage us to do over this time is to begin to grow our political imagination um, a a well-known um, professor, Stanley Hauerwas, he's a professor at Duke Divinity School. He, uh, he uses that term, that we need to grow as Christians in our political imagination. We often think that our uh, politics can only be done by voting or only can be done by trying to change a specific law or lobbying or, uh, you know, whatever, uh, you know, voting for people that support whatever political thing that we care about. And so he uses this example of, um, of one that's very important to the Christian world, and that is abortion. So he wants to use this example. So this is what he says. He says, um, oftentimes we think that the only impact politics can have is through the, the political system, and, and that's a problem. We need to seek imagination. 
Voting, of course, matters, but say we disagree with the idea of taking someone's life in the womb. How might we as a church address this issue besides simply voting for candidates that are pro-life? This is an important question to ask if this is where you land on that issue. So he's using this as an example of how we can grow our political imagination. He says, take, for instance, this issue. When Christians think that the struggle against abortion can only be pursued by voting for candidates with certain judicial philosophies, we have misunderstood how the influence, how to influence the world. And everyday action in society is removed from the political sphere. Political action is much broader than voting for certain politicians. It's serving at domestic abuse shelters. It's becoming a foster care parent or teaching students at local high schools or sharing wealth with an expectant but under-resourced families or speaking God's grace in terms of adoption or politically organizing for improved education or rezoning municipalities for childcare or creating parent nights out at programs at local churches or mentoring young mothers or mobilizing religious pressure, uh, religious pressure on medical service providers or apprenticing men into fatherhood. See, there's such a wide range of things that we can do politically to, uh, to, to care about life, to care about kids, to care about the, the world. And you could do this with any issue. And so maybe uh, that, that's not an issue that is something that you would even concern yourself with, but there are others, right? There may be ones on violence or, or gun control or racism or a number of other issues. And he uses this example of this, this idea that we need to expand our imaginations of what it looks like to live politically in a world as Christians. And lastly, I think that I would encourage us to live in such a way that, there is a pro- that, that, that people will see that there's a promise of, of another world in our lives. Uh, Karl Barth says this, the church exists to set up the world, to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. I love this, contradicting the way in the wor- of the world in such a way that we are promising another world. This is countercultural community that promises another world. And essentially what he's saying is don't just explain the alternative, but show it. Alvin Schmidt wrote, wrote this book called How Christianity Changed the World. And he lays out all these different ways in which Christians who had absolutely no political power and lived in a system and structure that did not value human life, did not value so many different people of society, was was incredibly corrupt and worldly and godless in so many ways. But the early church was was known for for, uh, not abandoning infants, for adopting children, for not uh, having human sacrifices, for, for pushing against people committing suicide, for women receiving freedom and dignity, for charity as compassion. See, the church didn't have any ability or representation uh, in, in the government, so there's no way that they could control what the government did So this, with, with the tax money that they, they did, and typically they just took it for themselves. So this idea of ch- charity and compassion came out of this idea of these people that were powerless uh, to, to, to impact how the government spent their money, so they instead began charities and compassion work so that they could care for people on their own. We live in a different world today, but you can see the principle behind 
what they were trying to do. They started hospitals and healthcare systems. They broke down class structures by welcoming people from all different socioeconomic backgrounds and histories and races. They had an imprint on education and music and science and art and literature. And I just think that what I'm trying to say today is that we so often think of politics as getting people in office and just trying to gain power. Or we just get sick of it and we separate out. And I think what God would want us to do is to use this uh, imagination of living in such a way that we create a promise of a world that is coming, that's better, that's, that's going to be the renewal of all things. So our eschatological hope means that we care deeply about this world, but ultimately we aren't surprised when it fails us. But to live in such a way to show people that there is a better way and that better way of the world is coming. Amen. We pray for pray with me. God, we thank you for this chance to 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 recognize once again that you are Lord, that you are God over it all. And I know that there are so many different opinions on politics in our church, not just meaning like people in different parties, but different platforms and different issues that matter to us. And as Christians, we are called to, uh, to move beyond simplistic answers and to dive into nuance and to think creatively and to live uniquely and to be willing to suffer for one another and suffer for God. And we do all this because we know that you have done that for us, that you have died for us, that you have sacrificed for us. Your love for us sent you all the way to the cross. And God, we declare this morning uh, that you are God, that you are Lord, that you are over all things. And so these next eight weeks, as we begin to think Christianly about all sorts of issues in the world and how we can think Christianly about those things, how we can interact with faith and culture, will you shape us? Will you mold us? Will you humble us and help us to taste and see how you are good? and how to live in our world right here and right now. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.